0: Thank you, Mark. And thank you, team, for leading us uh, in musical worship. They will be back later, and we will continue to worship God uh, after we've heard from Him. It's, there's a rhythm, by the way, to our worship services. Um, many of you that have been around have probably noticed that. We assemble, uh, we exalt God, we lift our eyes to Him, we connect with one another, and then we focus on the gospel and who Jesus is, and then we hear from Him and His Word through the teaching of, his, uh, of the Bible and then at the end of our services, we come back and simply respond to what God has told us. It's a, it's a give and a take between not those of us uh, in the pews and those on the stage, but between all of us as a church and our God where we express to Him, and we hear from Him, and we express back to Him. That's what worship is all about. That's what our Sunday morning worship services are about. And so that's why we call this time, even the time of teaching God's Word, uh, an act of worship. And I want to encourage you to participate in that act of worship with us by grabbing a Bible, if you've not already got one, open to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. It's late in your New Testament, and we continue our series of sermons through this book. We're actually almost done. This is the second-to-last uh, sermon in a whole series of sermons through the New Testament book of 1 John. As you're turning your Bibles there, I want to ask a question that I think ultimately this passage that we're going to see in a moment is designed to answer, and it's a question that confronts people sort of at all times and in all places. The question is simply this, um, how do you determine whom and what to trust I'll just put the period there <laughs> on purpose. Um, maybe the first thing you, that occurred to you is, uh, with regard to what? <laughs> and, and actually, I, I, I put the period there because I'm sort of asking the question, and I'm trying to ask it as open-ended as possible, with regard to anything, with regard to the car you're going to buy, or the you know, person you're going to date or marry, or the job you're going to take, or where you're going to go on vacation, or whatever. Like, how, how, do, how do we determine whom to trust? Um, follow-up question to that. Is more information a good thing when you need to make choices in your life? How would you answer that? Um, You probably know, most of us who were born and are raised in America, or if you've been in America long enough to really pick up on American culture, It's probably most of us, you probably know that our culture has a pretty definitive answer to that question. Is more information good, especially when choices need to be made? The answer is Yes. (laughs) Absolutely, more information is good. Educating people about themselves and their world empowers them to make better and better informed decisions, and I think, unquestionably, that that certainly is a good thing. More information is often very good. And yet, without contradicting that or, or taking anything away from that, is there such a thing as too much information? Okay, those of you that just laughed, <laughs> I think just answered the question, right? Is there such a thing as too much information? No surprise to anybody here. Technology has democratized information in, in our day and age. I think that's other people's language. Um, that's, that's a well-known, well-observed fact. Um, there's more information that is more uh, easily available to, more readily available to more people today than ever before. And... That's, that's really good insofar as it enables people to, you know, be better educated, better informed, and more responsible for their lives. There's undeniable good about the increasing access to increasing amounts of information. But have you ever felt information overload? Or analysis paralysis? You know what I mean by that? The fact that those two phrases exist in our modern vocabulary is probably evidence that we all know exactly what we're talking about. Um, I didn't make either of those phrases up. They're well-known phrases, information overload or analysis paralysis, you know, where you just, there's so much to think about and to process, you just end up going around and around inside your head and you never actually do anything. You're just paralyzed with, ah, what if I make the wrong decision? Sometimes more information is actually counterproductive to healthy decision-making at some point. You know, it's the kind of thing where, like, you get, there's the strange pain in your side, and you're like, I'm going to ignore it, because that's what all smart people do, right? (laughs) And then, you know, you ignore it, and it doesn't go away, but I don't want to go to the doctor, uh, because most of us are that guy. And so, you know, but it's not going away, so what do I do? I know what I'll do. I'll go to the internet. (laughs) Dr. Google is my friend. Somebody just said Dr. Google before I did. Like, kudos (laughs) to you. Right? So you, you Google this, and you search it, or you go to your Favorite medical website or whichever one you trust, <laughs> back to our original question, um, and you start reading about strange pains in your side, and you know, if you're, any, I don't know how that goes for you when you try it, but for me, that process often goes like, okay, so I read a bunch of stuff that makes sense, but then it asks me more questions, and I have more questions, so I do more reading, And on the way, I'm encountering terms that, I mean, I didn't go to medical school, so I'm not completely up to speed on, so I'm going off and doing more reading to define what that funny medical term means, and then all the potential conditions and things that could mean. And by the end of it, like after a couple hours of that, you come away more confused, sometimes more scared than you were at the beginning, like, wow, gee, I thought it might just be an indication that I have indigestion. It could be a fatal disease. Like, oh my gosh, am I going to expire in the middle of the night? There's so much maybe information with like no real way to process it and sort through like how does it relate to me right now? What do I need to set aside and ignore because it's probably not relevant? What do I need to focus on right now? The point is that the vast ocean of information that we have available to us as modern people, it's just impossible for any one person to fully process. And that's what our increased access to information has shown a lot of us. It's, it's like a tsunami is rolling up to the shore here's this 25 foot wall of water miles long and we're like i know how i'm going to stop it i'm going to drink the thing <laughs> you're just going to get overwhelmed there's no way one person can process all of that information and so actually studies bear out this is pretty well-known stuff in modern society that what most of us do is we fairly quickly settle on um, a very small number of key trusted information sources And we use those sources to sort of, as as like filters, to kind of sort through or just ignore the vast majority of the other voices that are out there, because you almost have to. I mean, there's there's just no way you can, anybody's got the time or the energy or the bandwidth to consider everything that is available today. So if you've ever experienced information overload or analysis paralysis, uh, you can probably relate to the need to be confident about your choices. That kind of leads me back to the question we started with, like how do, How do we make choices about our lives with confidence that we're building them on a solid foundation? Because, of course, the same challenge, the information overload challenge, doesn't just confront us when it comes to, like, our physical health or our financial health or career path or whatever. It also confronts us when it comes to our relationship with God. Between parents, friends, pastors, experts, Um, a broader cultural narrative that exists in every culture, including ours, Uh, the the multiplicity of religions and worldviews that exist in the world today. There is a bewildering array of voices claiming to show us what the right way is to live, who God is, if he is there at all, what he says, and how to relate to him. And they do not all agree. So how do we sort through all of that? We can sometimes gravitate um, toward the one source that's the most familiar. If you're raised Muslim, you're a Muslim. If you're raised a Christian, you just keep going to Christian churches because that's what we know. But if we're honest, and maybe some of us battle this in our darkest moments of laying awake at night and wondering, <laughs> um, that, those choices can feel a little bit arbitrary. right? I mean, did I gravitate toward this worldview this religion because it is what i know because it's what's comfortable i mean is there any basis for a christian to believe that he or she is building their life on the correct worldview that like this is as solid as i can be convinced it is that's actually what today's passage in the book of first john i think is designed to tell us as john gets ready to sort of head toward home and wrap this book up Getting Jesus right is important because eternal life hangs in the balance. And so we've seen throughout this study that the book of First John is really characterized by these three statements. It's it's an effort to help Christians differentiate real christianity or the genuine gospel from counterfeits that were running around in the first century and in the process of doing that we learn a lot about how to differentiate real christianity from counterfeits that run around in the 21st century And, and those three main characteristics we've come back to over and over again through this study are that genuine or real christianity is true to the original is the gospel i'm believing the one that was actually proclaimed by jesus and the apostles Secondly, real Christianity is also measured by two effects. It produces increasing obedience to Christ in a person's life. It changes the person who believes it in a positive way. And lastly, it produces love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When you see those two things, it's strong evidence you've got a person whose life is based on the true gospel. Now, today, John is circling one last time back around to that first point as a matter of emphasis. Because, you see, even in the first century... Even before Google and smartphones and the internet, um, the world was alive with competing views about who God is and and, and what he really said and how to relate to him. And so in this passage, the Apostle John is going to argue that the original gospel is more credible than the counterfeits of his day. We can establish that and have confidence. That's essentially where he's going with this passage. So there are six simple verses in this passage, and we've really simply got two points. The first is that he's establishing the credibility of the gospel. Secondly, he's going to show us how that can lead to life and joy and peace, not only for eternity, but right now. So he's going to show us what's credible. He's going to show us the impact on a real person's life. That's where we're headed this morning. The first three of those verses, verses 6 through 8, if you're in 1 John chapter 5, are a little bit confusing to modern ears. Um, Mark read them for us just a moment ago. Let me just read them again. If this sounds a little funny to you or odd, that's okay. It's okay. Here's what the Bible says: First John chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. Amen, church? Let's go home. There it is. (laughs) Let's be honest. What what is that all about? The word testify or versions of it are used repeatedly in these six short verses. He's talking about water and blood and Spirit and and all agreement. Like, what in the world is even going on here? Well, a couple of points of, of maybe background to help us understand it, and then we'll talk about why it matters. First of all, this obviously would have been a lot more intelligible to John's first century readers than it immediately is to us. They had some, some cultural knowledge, I think, that probably made what he's saying here more self-evident, and our culture is different, and our time is different, so maybe it's a little bit more distant. One of the things that's helpful to remember, to keep in mind, is that in the ancient world, particularly the ancient uh, Israelites, they had established systems in, in a court sense, in a legal sense, of how do you determine the truthfulness of, of a claim? You know, two, two neighbors have an argument. You know, somebody moved somebody else's landmark or, or whatever, and they would take each other to court. And, well, the Old Testament laid out the rules by which ancient courts would adjudicate disputes like that. How do we know? None of us were there. So how do you determine which guy is right and one of the key uh, elements in determining that was the requirement to have two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says, every matter shall be established. That is, what are you confident really happened? What can we decide upon? What can we act upon when there are two, or even better, three witnesses? If it's just one guy's word against another, ah, uh, that's a tough one. If we've got two or even three independent witnesses that we think are trustworthy, and they corroborate one guy's side of the story, okay, now that's, that's the one that we can say, he's right. That's how we're going to act. That's what we're going to assume is the truth. And so that, that sort of mindset of having two or three witnesses to establish the truthfulness of a matter was, was a pretty culturally entrenched thing. It had been around for centuries by the time John is writing this. And so what John is doing in this passage is that he's giving three witnesses to the truth claims of the original gospel, who Jesus is. So hopefully understanding that just helps us get the language a little bit. Now, one more point of explanation. What, what are the witnesses? What's this water and blood and spirit thing? Um, a lot could be said there. For the sake of time, we'll just kind of summarize it. The first, he says, um, this is the one who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not the water only, but the water and the blood. What is he talking about? What's the water? What's the blood? The water almost certainly is a reference to Jesus' baptism, when he was actually baptized in water. Um, Pretty much every evangelical scholar that I think is worth their salt <laughs> that I've looked at, and I looked at a lot of them, come to that same conclusion, and for good reasons. Um, when Jesus was baptizing, read that story, for example, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, the Spirit of God descended on him, and a voice from heaven audibly declared, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But even more importantly than that, What Matthew does in the Gospel of Matthew is he sets the baptism of Jesus in the context of the mission of Jesus. Jesus' baptism signifies that he was taking the place of of sinful man. He was taking Adam's place, uh, the one who originally sinned, failed God's task. He was taking the place of of ancient Israel who had experienced their own baptism of sorts through the Red Sea. That's a common theme throughout Scripture. Scripture. He was ultimately taking the place of us, of sinful humanity made by God to serve him and honor him, but we failed in that task because we serve ourselves and we sin. Jesus is taking our place. He's doing what we were meant to do, obeying the Father on our behalf. He was, he was living the righteous, obedient life for us that we should have lived. So when he came by water, he came in the place of sinful humanity to do what was right. That's the idea. Secondly, he came by blood, meaning what? meaning pretty uncontroversially his, his crucifixion. He died. His blood was shed. Jesus, the Son of God, died. I've been a church going Christian all my life, so sometimes I just gloss over those words. Like that's, I'm used to that. <laughs> that. That's not weird to me. But if I stop and think about it, that's weird. How could God die? That, that, was, a, that was a major hang-up. For, for millions of people back in the first century. How could God possibly die? It's just impossible. Frankly, it's a major hang-up for millions of people still in a 21st century world. To this very day, the um, majority official um, uh, teaching of Islam, the Islamic view of Jesus, is that he was God's, Allah they would say, greatest prophet. It was one of God's greatest prophets, sorry. And thus, he, he could not have been so completely defeated by evil men that's just impossible that's that's an offense to the idea of somebody being a special anointed one of god almighty so it's just if they find the idea um, islam finds the idea of, of jesus being god's son and dying just repulsive it's incomprehensible it's totally rejected and back in the first century before islam even existed that was the, the offense of that idea was not new John was refuting others who refused to believe that the Son of God could or did die. So he came not just by water, John says, but by the blood. Yes, that was God in human flesh, the Messiah. Lastly, he came by the Spirit, um, that is, God's own Spirit, who certainly brought about Jesus' birth and his incarnation, so Jesus physically arrived by being born of the Spirit. But I think even more more than that, what John's doing here is he's pulling back and and, and reminding us that, that God spoke of a savior who would defeat sin and Satan by his own suffering as early as chapter three of the Bible. I mean, that idea that God would send a savior to suffer and die and defeat sin by suffering and dying goes clear back to like almost page one of the Bible, and it's been a consistent message of God in his spirit through the scriptures and through the prophets all the way through from The system of animal sacrifices inaugurated in Exodus, which prefigured the Messiah's mission of of sacrificing himself and cleansing guilty people as a result, all the way through to the prophet Isaiah's hauntingly beautiful depiction of the suffering servant who bears our iniquities and by whose wounds we are healed. The consistent message all throughout the Bible from beginning to end is that God's Savior would come and live and die on our behalf. It's the means by which he would save us. So the water, blood, the spirit, they're all testifying the same thing. The interesting thing about this, of course, is that in writing all of this, the Apostle John is refuting specific erroneous ideas, claims that were being made about Jesus that did not line up with the gospel that's in the Bible. And we're sort of like listening to the debate or the conversation as if it's taking place on a telephone and we're sitting there in the kitchen with John while he's on his phone and he's arguing with the other people and the problem is we don't we don't hear what they're saying we only hear his side of it so when we, we say okay why does he bring this water and spirit and blood and the three testify what is he arguing against the truth is we have an idea but but scholars ultimately don't know for sure because we're not hearing the other side of the conversation he's clearly responding to some very specific erroneous ideas the good news is um, historians do know a lot of the beliefs that, about Jesus that were circulating around in the first century and so we can take pretty educated guesses as to what the apostle John is writing against here um, very likely in this case there was a belief that we actually know existed back then that was popular, that Jesus was born and died an ordinary human being, no different from anybody else. And he sort of became the Messiah um, at a certain point in his life, usually his baptism. That was the idea, is that, that the spirit of the Christ, whatever that meant to them, descended on him at his baptism. So he lived for a few years as this kind of super person, Messiah-like figure, but then the spirit of Christ left him right before his crucifixion because after all, how could God die? That's impossible. And so Jesus was born a normal man and died a normal man, and it just got really cool in the middle. That was sort of the idea. John is saying, no, no. He was born God in human flesh. He was baptized as God in human flesh in place of sinful humanity. He was crucified as God in human flesh in place of sinful humanity, just as God's Spirit had testified all along. Okay. I think that's a pretty good idea of what John is saying. Why does it matter? What strikes me so much from this is that getting Jesus right really matters. It really matters. And that's, that's not new for us as we've been reading the book of 1 John, right? We've seen over and over again, this, this book of the Bible is very um, black and white. It's very clear. He's trying to blow away fog and, and erase the shades of gray and just make the truth and the error clear. It's very binary. And that may be especially important to say that, that getting Jesus right matters because, because people matter, because eternal life hangs in the balance. That, that may be particularly important to say in our information democratized and somewhat cynical age, because many times our cultural assumption that there, there's many different takes on truth, and so because there's so many and nobody can process them all, nobody can lay claim to the truth, and consequently, to even evaluate the truth claim that's held by another person, for some people today, is automatically interpreted to be a, an aggressive or, or hateful action. Like it's, it's perceived as an attack on that person themselves. Like, hey, that's their belief. You can't evaluate whether it's right or wrong. That's a very offensive thing to do to them. I find myself feeling that way sometimes because I'm a product of the 21st century. You know, to evaluate. The, the Jesus of Mormonism is perceived sometimes as an attack on Mormons. To evaluate the Islamic view of Jesus as a Christian is sometimes interpreted to be an attack on uh, the personal beliefs of Muslims. And that cultural view, the most loving thing to do for a person is to just avoid all assessment of personal belief systems together. You believe your thing and, and don't worry about making sure that we get Jesus. You just get Jesus right yourself and, and don't worry about it for others. And I think while I actually personally and experientially can connect to that, um, I think the Bible's trying to take us in a little bit of a different direction as modern people in our thinking of that. Because the gospel makes us pro-people. Pro-people. We are for people. Because the gospel is the story of God being pro-people. Being for us. Um, creating a way to redeem and rescue us at tremendous cost to Himself, because He wants to save guilty sinners. He loves us enough to tell us the truth about our need for rescue, but then also provide the means for rescue. And it's important that, as Christians, if I can encourage us, this is what hit me today, or this this past week at least. I'll I'll lay it out there, and members of our church, you see if that strikes you too. So important to for me to. Remember that even as I'm interacting with other people or my, my tone of voice or my affect or whatever, that even when I'm talking about the true Jesus, I'm doing it in a way that makes it clear that, that we're pro-people. That I'm talking about him because I love you. Not because I'm interested in winning an argument or being right, as if that matters, but because getting Jesus right is important because people matter. I hope when the members of our church see um, those clean cut young men in their white shirts and their ties on their bikes riding around town as they do in our neighborhoods. That whether you stop and talk with those guys or not, you at least greet them with a wave and a smile. Man, they get enough derision and mockery from other people. Let that not be from us. Or I think about this sometimes, particularly on Fridays when my wife and I are usually running errands and we're driving home and and the mosque that is a mile away from my house, the parking lot's just jammed because that's when all of the Muslims in our community go to the mosque uh, for their services. And so not only is the parking lot jammed, but if we go by at the right time, we'll see all sorts of men, women, and children. They're um, Jordanians, they're Somalis, they're Syrians, they're Egyptians. They're all decked out in their hijabs and their kufis and they're going to the mosque. And it's like, what happens in my heart and in my mind at that point? And I hope and I pray um, that love for them swells in my heart. These are people made in God's image for whom Christ died. And that by God's grace, I may love them enough, like God did, to pray for them. And should he provide the opportunity to tell them about his provided rescue? The bottom line is, John is pressing us toward clarity and getting Jesus right, not to produce arrogance or a desire to win arguments, but because people matter. When a ship is going down and survivors are floating in the water, the loving thing is to toss them a life ring. They may perceive it as a life ring or not. They may take it, they may not. But the loving thing to do is to rescue So he wants to establish that the gospel as originally preached is true and trustworthy and he concludes in verse 9 that it is. That's where he kind of goes with all of this. He he sort of concludes in verses 9 and 10, therefore the matter is established, to again use that kind of Old Testament legal language. Um, Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is even greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. The logic is fairly simple. The original gospel is is what you can can bank on, because think about it. John's sort of saying, like, in their day, we consider human testimony to be credible and trustworthy if it's corroborated by three independent witnesses. Well, God only has to speak once, and it's right. I mean, he's God. Uh, he, He doesn't need to get external corroboration of what he said before you can trust it but isn't it amazing and gracious of God that he has given, according to John, three witnesses to the reality of who Jesus is, his baptism, his death, and his God's own spirit. God himself has sort of condescended to submit himself to um, the, the system of, of, of legal representation in that day, to speak our language, so to speak, If we consider human testimony with three witnesses credible, how much more do you consider God's testimony with three witnesses? The point is, you can bank on this. The incarnate, dead, and risen Jesus is God's witness to reality. The incarnate, dead, and risen Jesus is God's witness to reality. It's God saying, this is how it really is, and this is how you find life. And God never lies, <laughs> he never messes up. This isn't just someone's take, this is God's take, the Bible says. Real hope comes from building your life on the original gospel. To know that God made us to know him, and to love him, to worship him, and gave us a privileged place as human beings at the crown of his creation Secondly, to know, though, that we are sinners, that we are guilty before God because we have defamed his glory by living for ourselves and not for him. We are therefore guilty before him, unable to repair that damage or repay that debt. And that's where Jesus comes in, thirdly. God sent his own son to live the righteous life we should have lived in our place, to die the sinner's death we should have died in our place, and to miraculously experience resurrection from the dead to share that with us so that we can have that same experience. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God says, this is it. This is how it works. And our response, it's only when we turn from our self-reliant ways and grab onto that life preserver and hold on consistently to that precious life preserver of Christ that we experience life right now, which is a mere down payment of the life we will have for all eternity. That life is where he ends this passage. Let's talk about that. That's the gospel, that's the response. What difference does it make, verses 11 and 12? He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his son. Verse 12 is, I think, an adequate summary of this entire paragraph. Everything we're saying this morning, everything he's trying to get across is summarized here. Whoever has the son, referring to Jesus, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Bible wants it to be so clear to get Jesus right, not to win an argument, but because people matter. Because God wants you and I to experience life, regardless of our gender, regardless of the color of our skin, our sin background, our religious background, our socioeconomic status. We are people made in his image, and he wants us to experience life, and to get life, we've got to get Jesus right. That's what the Bible has always taught. How does life come from getting Jesus right? Because you see, one of the dangers for for many of us who are, are Christians and have been right about Jesus for a long time as we say, yep, that's right, that's important. And I hope people who don't know the real Jesus understand him because he, he, he gives life. But I've already got Jesus right, so how does this relate to me? And we run the risk of missing the entire point of this, this text. The one who has the Son has life. What does it look like to have life because I have Jesus? As we close and turn the corner, I want to share three examples of that from Scripture. What does it look like to have life because of Jesus? I want to encourage you, if um, you would, to turn over to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. A few books to the left in your New Testament. This is still about First John, but what we're going to get here is to, uh, a glimpse into how the gospel transformed the real experience of the Apostle Paul. Like, What did it look like for this guy, probably the New Testament's greatest theologian, to experience life in Christ. Look at the impact of the gospel on him. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just think about that for a minute. When, when hardships hit, when tough stuff happens, and this was a guy, some of you know, who lived through a lot of personally difficult stuff social ostracism, physical beatings, danger, poverty. He lived through a lot of hard stuff, as are many of us. Like, what do you do? Where do you find hope when life gets really hard? Do you know what he says? My heart is lifted up because of the life that I have in Christ. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead, I have a victorious future to look forward to that I experience now, which makes him able to say, yeah, this is hard, but I, in the midst of it, can rejoice that in the light of eternity, this isn't going to matter at all. It produced a perspective that didn't make the pain any less painful, but it totally reframed his experience of it. I got to ask myself, when my life gets hard, have I experienced anything like that? Has the gospel given me that kind of life daily in the moment? It goes on. Drop down to verse 31. Again, still in Romans chapter 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? By the way, that's a reference to the previous eight chapters, which has been an extensive explanation of the gospel. What do we say to this? Here's what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what he's doing? He's going back to the mechanics of the gospel. God gave up his son for us, and he's drawing a straight line from that to his personal experience in hardship. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? You see, the gospel changed the Apostle Paul's sense of personal shame. My shame before God that I don't measure up to God. Maybe my shame before people that I don't measure up to their expectations. Maybe my shame that I don't measure up to myself. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Many of us have. The Apostle Paul did. Where did he get hope in that moment to deal with his sense of personal shame? He drew a straight line back to the fact that Jesus came and died for me. That's what did the trick. The gospel led directly to life that was able to overcome shame. Lastly, since we're in Romans 8, drop down to the bottom of the chapter, verse 37, or verse 38, sorry. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus our lord you just sense him struggling for the words to capture what he's feeling that's what theology did to the apostle paul Back in chapter 5, verse 8, he had said, this is how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here in chapter 8, he's flipping those back around. He's going back to the fact that Christ died for us. That's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he's drawing a straight line to his experience of being overwhelmed at God's love. You can imagine over the years as a pastor a number of times i've talked with people who say i'm I'm struggling i don't know if god loves me i'm not feeling god loves me i know it's true i believe it's true because the bible says it and i trust the bible but uh, deep down inside i don't know that i do trust that i go back and i say do you realize christ hung on the cross for you Romans 5, 8, there is your surest knowledge that if God was with you then, he is with you now, whether we feel it or not. And maybe there's more to talk about why I'm not feeling God's love, but the, the bottom line is it is there and sometimes that's transforming for people. Other times the reaction would be sort of like, yeah, I, that, that's so intellectual. I, I need something something that's just gonna meet me where I'm at right now. And I get that, I get the feeling. I'm just trying to put the scripture before us and see that it's never just intellectual if we really get the gospel. Because we know what Christ did, we can be transformed by the freedom from shame, by the experience of God's love, by the promise of future glory. Real quickly, just a couple too. The Apostle John himself in 1 John, the book we've been looking at, chapter three, verse one, had said, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we would be called the children of, Of God. That word behold is like the first century Bible way of saying, check this out! (laughs) Can you believe this? The impact of the gospel on the Apostle John, he he was moved, we would say in our modern language, he was blown away. that God would take a sinner like him and make him a son because that's what happens in the good news of Jesus. If I embrace the sacrifice of Christ for me, he adopts me as a daughter, he adopts me as a son. God, the Holy One, wants to become my father, amen. Amen. It's unthinkable, it's ridiculous, it's glorious. It's the gospel of Christ. It's not intellectual only. It is a truth to be believed, but it is also a source of life it was for John. One last example, the apostles themselves from Acts chapter 5. This was long before 1 John was written, although John was in this group, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. The apostles were arrested by the authorities. Some of you know that story in Acts chapter 5. Peter, John, the crew, they're arrested. They're threatened by the authorities, um, unjustly arrested. They're experiencing unjust treatment of abusive authority um, social ostracism and then they're physically beaten by the authorities which was an acceptable punishment in that day and age back then and told we will do this again and worse if you keep talking about jesus now go away and shut up about this jesus guy their response has just never ceased to floor me acts chapter 5 verse 40 When they, the authorities, had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There's like a gear-on-gear grind when I read that narrative this is what they're going through, and then they rejoice. (laughs) What? I've never been beaten. I got into one fight once with Tim Russell when I was in the sixth grade. We were friends. We argued. He called me out. I stepped up. He punched me in the jaw. I realized at that point, I was not called to boxing. That was it. It was over as fast as it started. I remember it hurt. (laughs) Poof, get hit in the face. Um, Rung my bell was not a pleasant experience. Not something I particularly want to go through again if I don't have to. I've never been beaten knowingly and willfully by authorities who know exactly what they're doing and they're trying to cause pain to make a point. With my limited experience of physical violence, I can imagine feeling all sorts of things after being beaten by the authorities, but rejoicing is not one of them. something incredible is going on here. Why? Because they had just a few weeks before witnessed the resurrected Jesus. They saw him die. They saw him live again. Those facts were not just intellectual points of theology that, yes, I believe, so I'll go to heaven someday, but how does God meet me and make a difference in my life right now? For them, because of the gospel, it changed everything and how I experienced even rejection the threat of rejection, the threats that they experienced were incredibly intimidating and it doesn't seem like it slowed them down. When you're facing aggressive secularization and increasingly less subtle demands as a Christian that you conform to the spirit of the age or face social or even financial consequences in your workplaces, and some of us are dealing with that, in your schools, some of us are dealing with that. And we kind of, you know, we worry and we're like, how do I navigate this? And how do I do this? And I'm not trying to pick fights, but I feel like my ability to just be a faithful person and keep to myself is shrinking. What do I do? Friends, I don't have any easy answers for that. We need to talk about those things on a case-by-case basis because there's a lot of wisdom involved in how to respond, but what I think this is telling us is that the gospel leads to a joy that can't be taken away by social ostracism, career stalling, Financial deprivation, or anything of the kind, because it's the guarantee of riches in heaven for all eternity. Unending love, perfect family, unshakable riches, lasting joy and peace. Can your worldview offer you all that? The Bible's telling us if we build our lives on the original gospel of Jesus, all that and more is available right now. It doesn't mean life in this world gets easier or less painful. It means that it gets transformed. It gets transformed. He who has the Son has life. The gospel is our surest anchor, that God loves us, has a purpose for us, is in control even when he feels like he's not, and that our end of our story will be written by him, not by our circumstances or other people. Friends, if you're here this morning and the idea of the gospel or having a relationship with Jesus on the basis of his death and resurrection is something new or unfamiliar, I want to I thank you for being here, first of all. Uh, maybe you've come to church and you're not really used to being in church and it was like weird and awkward and maybe it's awkward for you to be here right now. If that's the case, I get that. You're not alone. Other people are in that same boat and man, thank you for coming. We are delighted that you are here. And we want to be clear about Jesus because you matter. To us, and most importantly, to God. Or even if it wasn't difficult for you to come here, I want to encourage you to talk with maybe a Christian that you know or some of our church leaders if you're comfortable with that. A number of myself, a couple of our pastors and elders will be down here at the front after the service. We'd love to meet you, just say hello, and talk about who Jesus is. To have the opportunity to know how to experience this kind of life, that's what God wants for you, according to the Bible. So that's what we want for you as well. And if I could just say lastly, to my fellow Christians, <laughs> to experience the emotional impacts of the gospel is God's will for our lives. May it never just be theory. I'm so impressed by the New Testament writers as people, as human beings, because they never really got, like they never got over the gospel. They never got the, yeah, 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 I got that, but how does God help me now? To them, the answer to that question always went back to who God is as shown in who Jesus is and what he's done for you and me. That's always our surest source of confidence, of God's presence, of God's direction, of God's value into our lives and of our secure future. Let's anchor ourselves, as a church, let's help anchor one another in that gospel. Because according to the Bible, that's the only sure foundation that will never let us down. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up as I pray. We're gonna respond to God as his people in worship. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the privilege of assembling, we've already thanked you for that, of hearing your word, of having access to the Bible, fairly easy access, of being able to hear and understand what you are saying. And Father God, I have no idea how your message this morning should impact even my own heart, much less other hearts out here, but I thank you that it's not my job to be God, it's yours, and so we're asking you to be God right now, asking you to show up in this place in a way that impacts our hearts. Would you shape our thinking would you take ideas and thoughts that are confusing or unhelpful and just kind of filter them out of our thinking over these next uh, few minutes together as we sing would you drive us into a closer relationship with you god where there are committed christians here who are struggling with doubt or discouragement i pray that you would show them how to lead from the truth of the gospel to a radical experience of your love that would give them the strength to take another step and keep going. Father, I pray for people who are here who may not have a relationship with you, that you would draw men and women to yourself. We ask that you would do all this in our midst for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand please?